that occurred in Atasca, Texas. Uh, shortly before World War II, there was a tragic fire at the public school, and uh, 263 children were killed. Hardly a family in town was unaffected by the tragedy. And so when the town fathers went to rebuild a, a new school, they made sure that a state-of-the-art, at that time state-of-the-art, new sprinkler system was installed in the new building. And once the new building was built, uh, they deputized uh, delegated honors students to give tours to adults in the community, and they always went out of their way to point out the advanced new sprinkler system. And as the town uh, grew, as the years passed, the, the town grew, and, and they needed to expand in order to uh, fill, or hold, have capacity for all the growing enrollment, and so they decided to build a wing onto the school, and so the town fathers, they, they hired a firm, they took bids, they hired a firm, and when the construction workers went to go and start building that new wing, they discovered something that shocked everybody. Uh, the state-of-the-art sprinkler system had never been connected to the water supply. So if a fire had happened, uh, the sprinkler system wouldn't have worked. And I find in that story a parable of the way that many Christians think about the Christian life. We seek the power of God to live the Christian life well. We pray for it, we seek it, we desire it, but we feel like we don't enjoy it. And that can, in that, we can begin to assume like, that like the school building, we just haven't somehow, there's been a mistake, we haven't been connected to God's power. And actually share that parable, I actually think that's a bad parable. I think that's the opposite of what's going on, because Paul teaches us that we've already been connected to God's power, but what we need now is a better knowledge of the power we've already been connected to. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 1, verse 18. I'll show you more about what I'm talking about. And just by way of context, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians. He started out with a greeting, and then he launched into this paragraph of praise for all that God has done for us uh, in His grand plan of redemption. The Father has adopted us as sons and daughters out of love. He's adopted us as sons and daughters into His family. The Son has redeemed us by giving His life on the cross, and the Holy Spirit has sealed us uh, so that we will arrive in the future at our heavenly inheritance. And I believe Paul doesn't want that truth to bounce off of the cold hearts of the Ephesians or us, and so then he launches into this prayer. He tells the Ephesians what he prays for them. That prayer starts in verse 15, uh, but let's start our reading today in the middle of that prayer, verse 18. We're going to read verses 18 through 23. Paul says in this portion, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age but in, also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the fullness of his body, um, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, fulfill now in us Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, so that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened to know 
the surpassing greatness of your power towards us who believe, and how your power is towards us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23, we find this magnificent prayer of the Apostle Paul, how he prayed for other Christians. And in previous messages, I've argued that this is a model prayer for us. We should imitate its content, and we're going to take a closer look at its content in verses 18 through 23 in just a minute. But before we get there, I also want to argue that we should learn from the implications of this prayer. And there are two implications I want to highlight before we even look at content this morning. The first implication is this, that according to Paul's words, one of the truths that we learn is that even as Christians, you and I still need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We still need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we can know the joy of knowing God and the joy of understanding the hope and the blessing of the gifts He's given us. Uh, Maybe we could say it this way. Yes, it's true that those who are lost need to come to know God personally, but those of us who know Christ still need to come to know God progressively, right? The gospel is not just some formal introduction to God. It's an invitation to know God intimately. And the test of whether or not we've come to know Him personally is whether we desire to know Him better, Maybe I could illustrate this knowledge of God this way. Um, I know President Biden. I can recognize his face. If uh, I'm in a room and he's on TV, I can recognize his voice even before I look up at the TV and see his face. But that doesn't mean I know Joe Biden. But do you know who I do know? I do know Brooke really well. I know my wife. We've been married almost 21 years. It'll be 21 years later this month, and uh, we know each other well. Brooke knows all my good stories. She knows all my jokes, um, right? She knows me well, and yet there still is a need for us as a couple, as a married couple, to know each other better. Let me illustrate. Uh, A few years ago, even though we know each other well, a few years ago we had an incident. Um, uh, It was when Brooke was meal planning, And so she was trying to meal plan for the week, and she just offered, hey, here's what we have. Here are some of the the dishes uh, I I could make, and she was trying to give me some options. And I said, well, I like everything on your list except the stuffed peppers. And it was something about the tone, the way I said it. She's like, why did you say it that way? And I said, well, honey, I, I, I don't really like stuffed peppers. And she said... I've been making stuffed peppers for you for years, and every time I make them, you eat them. And it took me 15 years to say, well, honey, when you make them, I I eat them, but I don't like them. I don't like stuffed peppers, right? Uh, See, even though we already know each other well, there's still so much to learn. And the burden of the Apostle Paul here is that we wouldn't just know of God, but that we would know Him personally, progressively, in a loving way that rearranges how we live our lives. And so, in verse 18, there's this uh, enlightenment the Apostle Paul prays for. In verse 17, he's praying that we would know God. But now in verse 18 and following, which is what we're going to focus on today, he's, he's focusing on us learning uh, to know and perceive the value and the preciousness of the gifts God has given 
His children, and not the physical gifts, just like food and clothing and shelter and, and the good gift of family and pleasant experiences. Yes, those are gifts of God, but He's focusing on the spiritual gifts God gives His children. And I think it's instructive, again, that this prayer comes right after the paragraph uh, Paul, uh, where he, of Paul where he praised God for His eternal plan of redemption. He doesn't want all that God has done for us to bounce off of our cold hearts. He wants us to perceive how valuable and precious what God has done for us is. And so, one implication I get from this is we all, even as Christians, we still need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We, we still need to grow to know God better. And uh, this is instructive for us because this typically isn't what we pray for ourselves, and it's typically not what we pray for fellow Christians, and so we need to learn from this prayer. The second implication of this prayer is that your brothers and sisters need your prayers. One of the ways God works in the world is by answering the prayers of His people. Your prayers matter. They make a difference. Christ is currently at the right hand of the Father making intercession for His people, and He invites you to do the same kind of thing He's doing to intercede on, uh, on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ with God. We see Paul did that. We see Paul interceding for the Ephesians, and he even tells us how he was praying for them, and we're invited to that ministry of intercession as well. Your prayers matter, and your brothers and sisters need your prayers for their spiritual advancement. Uh, those are two of the implications I see in what Paul says here. But now in terms of the prayer's content, we've spent a number of weeks looking at the good gifts uh, God gives His children already in verse 18. The first gift we looked at was the hope of our calling. Now, the word calling in verse 18 is being used synonymously with our salvation, okay? So, in terms of the hope of our calling, when, uh, when God drew you to Himself and to faith uh, in the Lord Jesus, He forgave you for your sins. He declared you righteous in His courtroom because the penalty had been paid by Christ. Uh, and, but not only are you declared righteous, He promises that He will take you through a process, through a training program that will one day eventually make you perfectly righteous. You'll receive a resurrection body. You'll live with Him in perfect fellowship in the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. There's a lot of hope in our calling. The second gift is the glory. It's at the end of verse 18, and it's said in a way that I think is maybe awkward, maybe hard to understand for an English-speaking audience, but the second gift is the glory of learning that God has chosen His people, the saints, as His inheritance. Now, the language of God receiving an inheritance, I think, is a little confusing, uh, but the point here is that God is claiming us as His special possession. So, Paul wants us to grasp the richness and the joy and the exceeding worth and the surpassing value of God choosing you as His precious possession. Because of His love, God adopted you into His family as His son or daughter. He's made you His special possession, which means this. It means that the most important, famous, rich, hip, interesting, wise, loving person in the cosmos has chosen you. He wants you to be His own possession. And we need to stop, take a time out, and think about what it means that He chose you, because we deal… we all crave relationship, right? We've been made as social creatures in God's image, 
And, but we deal with a lot of broken relationship. So let's talk for a moment about God wanting relationship with us. From eternity past, God has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know from the high priestly prayer Jesus prayed in John 17 that from eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed perfect love and communication and fellowship and camaraderie from before the world began, which means this. God wants you to be His own out of love, and He chose you not because He's lonely, okay? It's not because He's codependent. It's not because He's lonely. He, he is perfect love overflowing in the Trinity, and He's inviting you into that love, into that companionship, into that fellowship. And it's rich to know that it's a rich gift for us to know that God wants us as His treasured possession. And then today, we come uh, to the third gift Paul wants us to know about. Now, Paul is so concerned about us understanding the richness of this gift that he spends an extended amount of time on it. He, he spends an extended amount of time all the way down into verse 23 explaining it. And uh, this gift that Paul wants us to know is the surpassing greatness of God's power which is working in us who believe. So, the main idea here, verse 19, is God's power. Now, notice uh, the first word Paul uses to describe God's power in verse 19. It is a surpassingly great power. In other words, uh, it exceeds every other power. And notice also that it is towards, or you could also translate it as, it, you can translate the Greek word towards also as in. It is working in us who believe. So, that is to say that uh, this power is available to all Christians who believe. Paul uses the word us, uh, so he's including himself, but he's also including all the Ephesians. This is not just for uh, an elite few. This is for all Christians, this power of God working towards us or in us. Now, what is this power, and what is God doing with this power in our lives towards us? Well, Paul is going to go on to explain, middle of verse 19, that this surpassing power is in accord with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ. Now, I want to answer, this is just my agenda as a pastor, I want to answer, my question is, how, how is He using this power? Yes, God's powerful, but how is He using the power? But that's not what Paul seems to be preoccupied here, and I'm supposed to preach what Paul said here, right? So, before we get to how God is using this, let's just notice what the apostle does. He heaps up three more words to talk about how exceedingly great this power is, and each of these power words, if you will, they, uh, they, they add nuance to, to our understanding of the God's power that's working in us. Um, the first word that he uses is probably my favorite of the three. It's the word working in English. It descends to us from Greek into English as the word Energy. It's a really easy Greek vocabulary word to learn. It's energeo in Greek. Energy. Uh, it captures the idea of power at work. Not just potential power, but power that produces something. And it's point, it points to God's inexhaustible energy. God never gets tired. Can you even imagine what that would be like? He never gets tired. He never grows weary. He never gets sick. He never grows weak. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't take breaks. 
He doesn't need mental health days. He has inexhaustible energy, and he uses it for the sake of his people. And his energy works for his people according to the strength of his might. Now, that word strength, it communicates the power to rule over or to control something. From it, we get English words like democracy, which means rule by the people, rule of the people, or uh, theocracy, meaning the rule of God. And God's strength means that He has the power and control to rule all things. Uh, So, maybe we could put it this way. If all the angels in heaven and all the people on earth communicated together and came up with a well-thought-out coordinated, unified plan to rebel against God, it would not intimidate the Trinity in the least. A.W. Pink says it this way, such a revolt would, quote, have less effect upon God's eternal and unassailable throne than the spray of the Mediterranean's waves upon the towering rocks of Gibraltar. God's strength is unstoppable, and His tireless strength works in accord with His might. Now, might here has to do with um, God's energy to act and inherent strength. In other words, God isn't dependent on something outside of Him to get the strength to act, and He's also not harnessing a power outside of Him to get strength. The strength He has to act is internal. It's inherent to who He is. It's part of who He is, and He doesn't need anyone or anything to continue having the strength that He has to control all things. So, let's put all of these power words together uh, and communicate, try to communicate in our own words what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us that God has the inherent strength to act in such a way that He can overcome all resistance and accomplish all He intends without losing any energy or becoming tired, and His power to act this way He is using towards us and in us. The question then as we come to verse 20 is this, what is He using His power for? What exactly is He doing in us? Well, Paul doesn't answer here, but you can find answers all over the New Testament. And I want to take you to one of the answers in the New Testament. Turn over, it's probably just a couple pages, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to these verses because they explain how God's power is at work in us. In Philippians 2, verse 12, well, before we get to verse 12, what Paul has said previously is he's talked about how Christ emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant, went to the cross in obedience to the Father, and he's using Christ as an example of obedience for us to follow. And this is what he says, verse 12, so then, you know, based on the obedience of Christ, so then, my brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, before I talk about how God is working in us, I I do have to talk about verse 12, The term work out in verse 12 means to complete or to finish something already in progress. The emphasis of the term is on um, the work that needs to be completed, not so much on the process of it. It means to bring something to its proper end. 
Uh, Paul is not communicating that we earn our salvation by working for it, but he is exhorting us to take the salvation God has worked in us and to make it operational by being obedient like a student working out a math problem on a worksheet. Think about that for a moment, right? When a student works out a math problem on a worksheet, the solution is already established. It's already known. But in order for the student to get anything out of it, she has to work it out for herself, right? That's what's going on. And later on in Ephesians 2.10, we get an idea of what it means for us to work out our salvation. Uh, After talking about how uh, we've received this salvation by God's grace through faith in His Son, it's not because of works, Uh, the, the way salvation is set up excludes all bragging rights in heaven. He gets to the end of this long discussion of salvation as a gift, and then he says, Ephesians 2.10, that God gave us this gift so that we would walk in good works which He's prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Working out our salvation here means to make our salvation operational through obedience. Uh, When we did the congregational singing, I noticed that we sang Joyful, Joyful, which of course is set to the tune of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And uh, I'm a huge Beethoven fan. Uh, I love Beethoven's symphonies. He's probably my favorite composer. And another way to think about this idea of working out your salvation would be, imagine that you wanted to go hear one of Beethoven's symphonies. My favorite, I know this is odd because this isn't most people, my favorite is his sixth symphony, his pastoral. It's just very, I picture beautiful country scenes. It's wonderful. So imagine that you want to go hear one of his symphonies. So you plan ahead, you pay a lot of money for tickets, you get all dressed up, you fight DC traffic to get to the concert hall, maybe it's uh, the Kennedy Center, you sit down in your seat full of anticipation. The orchestra comes out with the conductor, they warm up, and then the lights go down. And the conductor makes his first move, and at his signal, the entire orchestra stands up, grabs their sheet music, and shows it to you in the audience. And then the conductor, after they're all standing up, he turns around, does the same thing, and then after showing you Beethoven's symphony, they bow and exit the stage. You you would demand a refund. Yes, the gift is the music Beethoven wrote, but you expected them to work it out by playing it so that what was on the page came to life. That's the same idea as working out our salvation. In the New Testament, our salvation is talked about as uh, past. There was a day in the past when you came to Christ, you were saved, present, and a lot of times we use the word sanctification to capture that, and future will be glorified. Uh, I don't think I'm taking liberties to say that when we talk about this theologically, theologically you could translate verse 12 as work out your sanctification with fear and trembling. But look at the reason Paul gives for you to work it out. Uh, Verse 13, work out your salvation because… I think a lot of our translations say for, but you can translate that as because. Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So this explains now the surpassing greatness of God's power, what it is working in us. And notice it's working two things. In this passage, it's two things. It is to will, 
and to work for His good pleasure. Now, we understand work. We know what good works are. Uh, God's prepared good, hand, good works beforehand for us to walk in. But notice the word will. Uh, that's why I took you to this passage. At the moment of salvation, God went to work on your will. He's transforming you as a decision maker, but not in a way that makes you a robot. He's doing something far more wonderful. Instead, uh, He persuades your will by changing your desires. As He transforms your heart's desires, that influences your will, uh, and that enables us to perform good works. And to perform good works, not just out of a sense of obligation, not just for show to try and look like spiritual people, but because we genuinely have been persuaded that we like good works and we want to walk in them. We chose them because we like walking in them. That's the way that He's working in us. That's what God's inexhaustible energy in us is doing. Uh, now turn back over to Ephesians 1, verse 20. So now we, we see that uh, His inexhaustible power is working in us. It's working in us to, to change us. We had to cross-reference to see how. But now what Paul wants us to do, uh, verse 20, is he wants to show us… Um, he, he, what he does is I believe he's giving us examples of God's power working outside of us, how God has worked out in the world, to give us more confidence in God's power that's working in us. Now, I didn't put this in my notes, but I think one of the reasons why is because sanctification is, a, from our perspective, is a slow process, right? You think about it, I think about it kind of like gardening, right? If you, grow, uh, if you grow a garden, you don't pull up a chair and sit and watch it grow like it's a spectator sport because it's really slow. It, if you sit down and you try to watch it like a sport, the growth is imperceptible, but you know that over the months, the plants grow and then produce fruit. Well, sanctification is the same way. We can get easily discouraged. We're defeated. We still fall into sin. And so, I think what Paul is trying to do here is give us confidence in God's power by giving us three illustrations of God's power working outside of us so that we can see, hey, that, that same power He's using to work in us. And the first illustration is in verses 20 and 21. The power of God working in us is the same power God used, verse 20, when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So the first illustration is the resurrection, ascension, and coronation of Christ. Uh, the same untiring, unstoppable energy that God the Father used to raise the Son from the dead, He's using to transform you. And notice that Paul isn't just talking about the resurrection here. Uh, he's speaking of the ascension and coronation of Christ. When Christ died, the Father brought Him back from out of the dead ones, and then He seated Him in a place of honor at His right hand, and that seat was a place of authority far above all other authorities, and it was also a place of fame and honor above any other honor that could be given, above any other honor any other being experiences. And in the next paragraph, Paul actually applies the reality of the Father giving the Son that honor to us. Uh, over in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, 
uh, he says, it's talking about how God saved us when we were uh, hopeless. Uh, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, here's the application. When Christ died on the cross, if you're a Christian, there is a sense in which you died with Him. In the mind of God, your old self died on the cross with Christ. And when Christ was raised from the dead, you were raised to new life. And when Christ was seated in His place of authority and honor in heaven, uh, in God's mind, you and I were seated with Him. Uh, in God's mind, it's, even though it hasn't happened to us yet, it's a reality. It's already done. Uh, in fact, one of the needs for sanctification and working out our salvation is because there's VIP seating in heaven. There's a coming marriage supper of the Lamb that we're invited to because we're connected to Christ. And part of the sanctification process is fitting us so that we fit in in heaven and don't embarrass ourselves, right? There's a marriage supper coming. And I, as a gift this last Christmas, I bought Brooke uh, the Complete Works of Jane Austen. And if you've ever read Jane Austen, you know that she has this unique way as an author of writing the most annoying, infuriating characters, right? And part of sanctification is trying to get us to heaven and not have me embarrass myself by acting like Mr. Collins. It's trying to get us to heaven, ladies, and not have you embarrass yourself by talking like Mrs. Elton. You don't want to go on and on like, oh, there has to be ribbon and lace. No, 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 no. We're trying to fit in in heaven. He's fitting us to be glorified in heaven. And the same power God used to raise Jesus from the dead, He's using to work in you. And the work is slow, but it's inexorable. It's moving forward. Uh, if we had time-lapse film for your spiritual growth, it would be much more encouraging because like seeing the plants sprout and come up and bear a blossom and then bear fruit, you would see how He's working in you. The second illustration of God's power at work in you that Paul gives here is in verse 22, and it is that He put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. Now Paul is borrowing language from Psalm 8. Now if you go back to Psalm 8, the glory of God on display in Psalm 8 is not God's raw power as Creator or God uh, intervening in nature with miracles by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. No, no, no. In Psalm 8, the glory of God is seen in God's glory as a delegator. So, in Psalm 8, the way God rules the world is by creating people made in His image to rule over and manage the earth for Him. The problem is we failed. Mankind, in Adam, we failed because when Adam fell into sin, he, uh, he subjected the whole world to futility and the curse of sin. He passed uh, uh, sin on to the rest of humanity. In Adam, mankind failed. Uh, all things are not in subjection to us. Nature's out of control. We're out of control. But where Adam failed, Christ succeeded at the cross. And Jesus Himself used Psalm 8, and even though if you read it in an Old Testament context, it's not completely obvious that it's a messianic psalm. Jesus treated it like a messianic psalm in debate with the chief priests and the scribes, and He said this of Himself. Actually, He, he applied this to Himself. The psalmist says, verse 
6 of Psalm 8, you, God, you make him rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So, this is a reference back to Psalm 8, and the picture here is of a victorious general placing his feet on the neck of one of his enemies. And there's a scene like this in Scripture. In Joshua chapter 10, if you remember, Joshua defeats five powerful Amorite kings. He has those kings lay on the ground, and he has his generals come and put their feet on the necks of those kings. And so, what Paul is saying here, it is a a new illustration, but it refers back to Christ being given all power and authority and honor when He was seated at God's right hand. And I think it applies to us in a couple of ways. First and foremost, it applies to our salvation. Because we were rebels against God, we were out of control, and yet God graciously uh, drew us to Himself so that we would voluntarily bow the knee to Christ as Lord. We would voluntarily uh, uh, bear our necks to then bear His yoke, which when we put it on, we found uh, was lighter and easier than we thought it would be. In fact, it was lighter and easier than the feudal ways of living we were giving ourselves to before. And so, I think it applies to us that way. But secondly, now that we're Christians, the idea of the future day when everything will, in fact, be subjected to Christ and put under His feet, that is a hope we look forward to. And I say that because Paul actually quotes… So, so Paul's using uh, uh, Psalm 8 language here. He uses Psalm 8 language somewhere else. He uses it in 1 Corinthians, and he applies it to Christ uh, having all things put in subjection under Him to include Christ defeating death and giving us resurrection bodies. In fact, this is what Paul says, uh, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who were asleep. For since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. after that those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, uh, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet, there's our language, the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for He has put all things in subjection under His feet. Just to make sure we don't miss it, Paul quotes uh, Psalm 8 twice, and if it's like an Oreo cookie, the creamy filling is the last enemy being defeated, which is death. So, the same power that God used to subject all things to Himself and that Christ will use to defeat death, God is also using and will use to transform our bodies so that in the future we receive a new resurrection body that won't get sick or age or die. Our souls will be transformed uh, to reflect the moral image of Christ, and that's part of what uh, the Scriptures mean when they talk about all things being put under subjection to Christ. So, the same power God is using to do that, He's using to work in us to transform us. The third example of God's power that Paul uses is in the middle of verse 22. And He gave Him, that is Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. God the Father is the one who connected Christ to the church, uh, making Christ the head and the church the body. 
there are several lessons we can learn from this image. The first is that Christ is Lord of the church. Uh, your head directs your body where to go, and in the same way, Christ directs the church. The second lesson we can learn, I think, from this image has to do with our union, right? Our physical heads live connected to and in solidarity with our bodies, right? And Christ uh, is the same with the church, and if you want to know how close the church is to Christ's heart, if you want to know how involved Christ is with the church, just think about the uh, distance from your head to your body, right? That's how close Christ is to the church. He's intimately connected with it. Uh, Christ is uh, the most radically free person in the cosmos, right? There are no demands on Him. There are no duties He has. There's no outside authority. Uh, He doesn't need anything or anyone. And so, what does this radically free person use His time doing? According to Scripture, He uses it interceding for the church, building up the church, uh, sanctifying the church. Uh, Christ died for the church. He spends His days interceding for her, and He is in union with the true church wherever it's found. What that means then is that the assembly of all of us who are called out of the world to follow Christ are close to His heart. Uh, He died for us, He spends His days interceding for us, and He is working to grow us in our faith. And then Paul applies this idea to us directly as he finishes his sentence, verse 23. He says that the church is His body, that Christ's body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, that Christ fills all in all, that makes perfect sense, right? It just means that uh, He rules all things, sustains all things, He directs all things. That's easy. We also know that the church is Christ's body. It's referred to… It's referred. Uh, it's referred to that way many times in the New Testament. But here's the question. What does it mean that the church is the fullness of Him, the fullness of Christ? Well, I want to confess to you I couldn't find an answer this week. I had a really hard time finding an answer to what does it mean that the church is the fullness of Christ, but this is the best I could come up with. Uh, This is from a commentator named William Hendrickson. He explains it this way, quote, as to His divine essence, Christ in no sense whatsoever is dependent on or capable of being completed by the church, but as the bridegroom, He's incomplete without the bride. As the vine, he cannot be thought of without the branches. As the shepherd, he's not seen without his sheep. And so also as the head, he finds his full expression in his body, the church. What this means then is that the high honor of being adopted as God's son or daughter uh, is the same as God the Father choosing us as His special possession. Just as the Father has chosen us to be His special inheritance, so the Son wants us to be His own bride. Because of His love, the Father and the Son want you as their own. So, as you sit here this morning, uh, you may be feeling spiritually weak or easily defeated or discouraged for some reason, but remember this, God's power has saved you, and God's power is continuing to work in you. And yes, the work seems slow by our standards, but it is inexorable. The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, and the same power He used to subject all things to Christ, and the same power uh, that He used to connect Christ inseparably from the church, He is now using to make you like Christ, to transform your will. 
So in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23 then, we have this paragraph where Paul prays this magnificent prayer. And back in May, when we started into this section, uh, I began to preach it by asking this question. When it comes to interceding for your fellow Christians, what will you ask for? Well, Paul asked that God wouldn't… He didn't ask for uh, God to give the Ephesians any additional resources, but what he did pray instead was for the Ephesians to come to a greater understanding of the resources they already have, and also to come to a greater knowledge of God Himself. What do you ask for when the person that you're praying for already has everything? Their sins have been forgiven. They've been adopted into God's family. They stand in a short time to inherit the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. What do you pray for for that kind of person? Well, you pray for God to bring them to a deeper knowledge of Himself, and you pray for the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened, to know the hope of their calling, the honor of being God's precious possession, and the surpassing greatness of God's power that is working His holiness into them. With that in mind, let's pray.